What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we begin a series that will take us through the rest of the season of Lent and to Easter Sunday. We are revisiting a book written by a former pastor here, the Reverend David Wiley, and the title of his book is Why Mark the Politics of Resurrection in the First Gospel. Around this time last year, David Wiley was here to, at Grace to preach a sermon, and before the service started, he told me he had revised uh, his book, and so he had a new edition on Why Mark. He mentioned that it would be released this spring, and I thought that would make for an excellent sermon series leading up to Easter. So a plan was hatched. I read the book, was delighted by it, and had the chance to talk, talk it over with Dave. But then publishers, they do what they do. His second edition of the book ended up being delayed. It won't be out until next Easter. Uh, but I was grateful to receive a copy of the manuscript as it is now. Dave even told me that if I read it over and make any suggestions for edits or grammar, he would add my name as an editor. I told him I can guarantee I would submit at least one edit just so I can get my name in his book. I already found a comma that should be a semicolon in the first chapter, so let's see if he lives up to his word. Despite the delay, we are going to move ahead with studying this book because I think in the Gospel of Mark, there is a timely word about family, friends, about the events during the Holy Week, and about the resurrection itself. As we'll see, this Gospel is unlike any other. It is a puzzle that requires some critical thinking and reflection. So let's dive in and see what comes of it. We're going to hear from Joe, who is going to share with us from chapter 6. Jesus has just encountered several desperate people. One man has a child who is on the edge of death. Another is a woman who has spent all of her money on doctors, and she's only getting worse and worse. Both miraculously were healed by Jesus. So now Jesus comes to his hometown. What happens here is wild and totally unexpected. Let's hear the story from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their own hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could de do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. And from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called him, a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, 
here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Reveal to us, Lord, what true family is and what it means to serve Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As the Reverend David Wiley does in his book, let's start at the end. In the first chapter, he tells the story of being in seminary with a professor reading the end of the Gospel of Mark that says a young man dressed in white tells the people standing there that Jesus has arisen. They are to go to Galilee where they will see him. But instead, they flee, trembling, telling no one because they were afraid. Sounds all wrong, doesn't it? Mark, who very likely wrote the first gospel story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, reports zero appearances of the risen Christ. Dave couldn't understand this. Why would Mark do that? Why would he skip over what many of us consider to be the most important part of the story, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over the coming weeks, we'll try to answer this question, but for now, we are going to look at some of the other difficulties in this book. We are going to start looking at the family of Jesus. When I was a child, I remember being outside running around the house with my brother. He was probably 12 or 13 at the time, which would have made me 10 or 11 years old. Uh, one side of our house butted up against the neighbor's property, and because she was older, uh, this neighbor, she couldn't mow the lawn and, and do much yard work. She had these brambles with thorns and bushes several feet high. It took us years to realize this, but our property line was actually about 20 or 30 feet deeper into what we thought was her property. The brambles, though, had just taken over. Eventually, we would reclaim this property by mowing and trimming, but on this day, there was just this narrow path between our house and these brambles. As we were running and chasing each other outside after some rain, my brother turned the corner of the house and slipped in the mud, and as he lands face first in the mud, he slides all the way into the brambles. Uh, my brother Rick would one day study religion and become a pastor like me, but on that day, he cursed like a sailor. <laughs> he swore so much and so loud, and of course, our game comes to an end. We walk inside, and I'm sure my mother was wondering, what in the world happened that he's covered in mud and has all these thorns sticking out of his clothes? But what's the first thing a little brother says in that situation? Mom, Ricky swore... And in our home, swearing definitely outranked caring for a muddy or injured child. So he got led straight to the bathroom where my mother promptly and quite literally washed his mouth out with soap. I'd say I loved my family growing up, but I definitely loved getting my siblings in trouble more. Back then, I really wasn't much of a model of how to love and care for your family, but I certainly saw many examples I think of the parents who had children hitting college age, and they would do everything they could to get them to stay home. They tell them that if they lived at home during college, they would pay their entire tuition. They tell them they could always live at home no matter what, no matter how old they got. 
These parents were saying to their children, look, you are the most important thing in the world to me. I will do anything, anything to help you and support you. Their love was 100% unconditional. Now compare that to how we treat everybody else. As important as your friends might be, as important as the school might be to you and the, uh, the town and this whole community might be to you, family, your own flesh and blood takes priority, right? You would absolutely risk your life to save your, your parent or your child. Now maybe you would do the same to save a child or your friend, but another adult in town, some random person you hardly know, Very few of us would give up everything, give up all our money, give away our homes, give up our very lives for someone we don't know. They just aren't family, right? There was this experiment done through Boston College. People were asked to help a stranger. It didn't involve any money or a lot of time, just a small task done for a stranger. Then afterward, they had people evaluate how trustworthy the person who helped the stranger was, It won't surprise you, those who helped were rated way more trustworthy than people who wouldn't help. That makes sense, right? They had a second experiment, though, where someone had to choose who they helped, either a complete stranger or a member of their own family. They couldn't choose both. They had to help one or the other. Then the same thing, they were rated how trustworthy they were. And wouldn't you know, it was the exact opposite of this first experiment. If you helped a stranger and not your own family, you were considered far less trustworthy. You do the exact same thing, help a stranger, but if you ignore your family while doing it, you are viewed as suspicious. Interestingly, in a third experiment, if you did nothing at all, Ignoring your neighbor in need, people thought more highly of them than they did of people who helped strangers but ignored their own family. That's weird, isn't it? Not helping at all is considered better than helping a stranger over family. There's just something built into us that says family matters above all else. You can't ignore your family. And yet, in the Gospel of Mark, we hear about Jesus doing Exactly that. His family is outside the house. He's staying in, and they call for him, and he says, Who is my mother and brothers? Who is my family? And he answers his own question, Here are my mother and my brothers surrounding me in this home. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. What is going on? Why would Jesus so blatantly ignore his own family? Why would God not prioritize flesh and blood over strangers and enemies? And are we wrong when we put our families first ahead of friends and others in the community? It would seem the Gospel of Mark has some explaining to do. In Why Mark, we get some glimmers of what's happening in the background. Remember the subtitle? is the politics of resurrection in the first gospel. We don't usually like to think about politics influencing God's word, but it might just have a big impact in how we understand this strange action taken by Jesus. The first thing to note is that Jesus' family only shows up twice in all of the gospel of Mark. We've already read about them in chapters 3 and 6. That's it. That's all the stories. Since Mark was the first gospel, if this were the only gospel ever written, we wouldn't even know the name of Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, 
In fact, Mark 6 tells us that Jesus was a carpenter, not his father. Jesus was the carpenter. That means we'd have to guess at what Joseph did for a living. We have very little detail. Then we have the fact that both of these stories about Jesus' family are not all that positive, are they? Jesus' family is standing outside of the home he's in asking for him. Why would they do that? Why would, wouldn't they just walk into the home? When I was a teenager, I always imagined it was because Jesus did so many miracles, there was always a crowd of hundreds of people around him hoping to be healed. And maybe that's part of the explanation. Mark 3.20 says, And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. So maybe that explains that. But guess what the very next line is? When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. It actually goes on to describe how they went and got the religious leaders, the scribes from the capital in Jerusalem, to come help. Jesus' family thinks he has some kind of mental illness. That's where we get the religious leaders saying he is demon-possessed, and Jesus retorts, how can Satan cast out Satan? A house divided cannot stand. If Jesus is doing good things, healing and making them well again, how can he be controlled by an evil spirit? But the damage is done here. Jesus' own family doesn't believe him. They don't believe what he is doing is from God. They just think he's lost his mind. Then in Mark 6, Jesus returns home and he teaches in the synagogue. They are amazed at his teaching, floored by it even, and they say, wait, where did this guy come from? We know who he is. He's Mary's son, and we know his family too. How is it possible he is so knowledgeable about the scriptures? There's a little bit of an argument to be made here, too, that our Bible gets something wrong at this point. Ancient Greek has no punctuation, so there are no periods or quotation marks. Our Bible says, quote, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Hoses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? end quote, and they took offense at him. But what it perhaps should say, if you simply move the quotation mark, is, quote, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Hoses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him, end quote. Who is taking offense? Is it the people who were just amazed at his teaching? That doesn't seem very natural, does it? They were impressed. Why would they suddenly take offense just by naming who his family is? Far more likely is that Jesus' own family has taken offense. His own family has already rejected him. Dave Wiley also makes the point that something else could be going on here, too. There is a, a religious group within Judaism called the Essenes. This is a very spiritual group, different from the Pharisees or Sadducees. They are devout, they don't marry, they don't own property or money, which when they do have it, they pool it together, and they are very oriented around the community. That ticks a few boxes that sound like Jesus, doesn't it? On top of that, they believe that at lunch and dinner time, meals should be taken at home with the Essene community in silence. Outsiders were not allowed. If this is what's happening in Mark 3, he's not intentionally shunning his family. They have simply 
come at a time when they are not allowed in by the community he lives with. It's quite possible Jesus is part of this community, or at least on friendly terms using and giving support uh, to this religious group scattered all across Israel. So maybe it's not so much that Jesus has rejected his family, but that his family has rejected him. The gospel writer Mark may have subtly pointed this out because one big argument happening after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven is, who is in charge now? One of the key leaders soon after Jesus leaves is James, the brother of Jesus. It could seem natural to turn to a relative to replace a leader. Kings and queens do this, but how many times does that get people into trouble? I think of Emperor Nero, who burned Christians alive, or Bloody Mary, who beheaded them. Just because you have a blood connection to someone doesn't mean that you would be a good leader. Besides, James didn't even believe in Jesus, at least not in the beginning. He was with his family, taking offense at Jesus, and his unbelief seems to be part of the reason why Jesus can do no miracles in his hometown. What do we take away from this? What does it mean for us that it wasn't Jesus rejecting his family, but his family rejecting him? One thing that becomes clear to me is just how important Jesus's other community was, the Essenes. In many ways, they became a family for Jesus. Again, Mark subtly hints at this. In Mark 15, after Jesus has been crucified, a, a man named Joseph, not his father, not his brother, but Joseph of a place called Arimathea, boldly goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Perhaps Joseph is a member of this Essene community because when he is given his body, Joseph wraps it in a cloth that is exactly like the ones worn by members of the Essene. Perhaps, perhaps Joseph isn't just doing a kind gesture to a dead man. Perhaps he is taking on the role of an adoptive father, wrapping up his boy's body, one of his own who was taken far too young, is given love and care and kindness to one who is not family in the traditional sense, but to one whose family cannot care for him. Maybe you've never been on the outside of your family's love and care, but could you imagine what it might be like for someone? How difficult life would be, no home, no food, no guarantee that you'll be safe and warm when morning comes. Mark reminds us that a community beyond the family unit is a vital resource for those who have no mother or father, no brother or sister. And we, the church, are called to be that community. In some ways, we are already doing this. Last week, we shared in the congregational email a note we received from someone who got some soup from our soup ministry. She said she had been ill for a long time, had some family issues, and also had to move out of her home. That sounds like someone who might need a community beyond the family, doesn't it? 
And this woman, Georgia was her name, said, A bowl of warm, delicious soup given at such a time surely represents God's command, love one another. Indeed it does. And maybe others here could be a blessing to someone by joining our soup ministry. This past week, I also met with one of our confirmands. We were doing a lesson on the different ministries of the church, and we were naming everything the church does. And I asked her, what do you think the church could do more of? And she hesitated for a moment, but said, I think we could visit people more. And I agree. We have our congregational care team who visits with the homebound. And as much as I love our team and I'm grateful for every single member on it, I always think if we had more people, we could visit more people. I think especially of people who are in the hospital. Even after I meet with someone and pray and share communion with them, I walk out thinking that was what, maybe one hour? What about the rest of the day? What about the other days? What about the people who have no one else to visit them. Mark's gospel is not telling us to send one person. He's saying send an army. Be the community. Be the many people it takes to support someone so that it can experience good news. This is especially important in life's toughest moments after a mental health crisis, during severe sickness, or after the death of a loved one. Some of you know what those seasons feel like, don't let someone who doesn't have family support be left on their own. Be an inclusive community. Go to them, serve them, and invite them in so they can know Jesus. I could say so much more, but let's end with this. Uh, one morning, Kathy joined an AA group. She was about 35 at the time, and you could tell she was once beautiful, but life had taken a toll on her young body. Her face was swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotten, and her hair had not been washed in a very long time. As she took her turn to tell her story, she said, I've been in five states in the last month. I've slept under bridges, been arrested, violated, robbed. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore, but I can't stop drinking. Next to Kathy was Maryland, who had been sober herself for more than 12 years. She reached both arms toward Kathy and pulled her close. She quietly said into her ear, honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming, okay? Just keep coming. And Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. What a simple but beautiful gesture. All you need to do to overcome struggle is to keep showing up. All you need to find an adoptive family who will love you unconditionally is to be here. And for those of you who are ready to grow in your faith today, will you be a Marilyn for someone today? Who knows, maybe one day it will be you in desperate need of someone to hold you and tell you it's going to be okay. So we offer this love to one another, whether they are blood relatives or not. I think Jesus would want our church to be a place where the doors are swung wide open. You need family? You need community? Then come to the church. We won't reject you. We'll welcome you like a brother or a sister. Amen? Amen.
For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.